If you want to be a premier cop, then you need to learn from the premier police training company in the land. Of course, I'm talking about Street Cop Training. They've got dozens of instructors out in the field right now, sharing their expertise in narcotics, interdiction, report writing, first aid, mental health, case law, and just quality police work. And those aren't even all the topics. There's literally something for everybody. I've attended several classes myself, and I can tell you that these folks cannot miss. Dennis Benino, the owner, is doing massive things for the world of law enforcement at a time when everyone else seems to be running away from it. Street Cop Training is literally the best in the business. Check out their private Instagram and join their law enforcement-only Facebook group to get free trainings, and then check out upcoming in-person and on-demand trainings at streetcop.com. You will not be disappointed. The views and opinions expressed on the 10-8 podcast are those of the authors and guests individually. They do not necessarily reflect an official policy or position. The 10-8 podcast is for entertainment purposes only and is not affiliated with any entity, agency, or department. This week on the 108 Podcast, Addicted to Improvement with Jenny Burton. At the age of 40, I was homeless, on drugs. I had married the guy who shot and killed my son's dad and trying to change some aspects of our criminal justice system. And it includes creating an accountability aspect. I, if there was a message that I could give to law enforcement, it would be thank you so much because the work that you do actually does matter. I'll be fucked up if you can't be right. Yeah. I do the same thing. I told you that I never would. I told you I changed even when I knew I never could. Know that I can't find nobody else as good as you. I need you to stay. Do you ever actually take a moment and assess where you are in your life? And furthermore, do you ever look at what you've done, what you accomplished, where you are, and felt happy and proud about it? Good morning, good afternoon, and good evening. Welcome to the 108 Podcast. My name is Officer Y. Today's episode is with Ginny Burton, and it's called Addicted to Improvement. Now, what we're going to talk about in just a few minutes with Ginny Burton is just that. We're going to talk about how she transformed her life from really about as rock bottom as you can get to such an amazing success story. I think what we tend to do And we could talk about it as law enforcement officers, but we can really just talk about it as humans in general, is we don't give ourselves enough credit for everything that we've done and all that we've accomplished. Now, I said last week how I am happy where I am in my life, but I don't consider myself a finished product by any means. But I'm happy where I am. I'm proud of where I am and all that I've accomplished. And I feel like that's a very important key, and that's what I'm going to hone in on this week, is really being happy and proud with where you are. Listen, life is tough, okay? Sometimes the biggest battle, the biggest success you can have for a whole day is getting out of bed and going to work, taking a shower, just living life. Sometimes living life is tough. I'm not going to sit here and tell you that everything is 
sunshine and rainbows at all hours of the day. I just can't tell you that. I'm sorry. If this is bursting your bubble, breaking that, uh, breaking the glass, as I always say, I apologize, but that's just not how real life is. Sometimes it's really damn hard to do what you got to do. But what you need to do, and what I really hope you take away from this little intro today is sometimes it's okay just to look at your life and go, wow, think of where I was six months ago, a year ago, three years ago, five, ten, whatever measure you want to measure your success and go, wow, I've really made it quite far. And I think if you think of life that way, you will be pleasantly surprised at all that you have accomplished, all that you will accomplish. And on the other side, you think about what you were worried about 10 years ago. Can you remember your worst day seven years ago? The day that really got you down in the dumps and you did not want to move? Now, of course, I'm talking less serious than something truly traumatic. A traumatic experience is one thing. But those those moments aside, let's think of, you know, some days you get really just upset. Something didn't go your way at work. Um, you didn't get that job promotion you wanted that day or shit. I've had days where, you know, people uh, didn't respond to my message the way I wanted them to. Uh, I didn't have I had a less than satisfactory interaction with a coworker or, or a personal acquaintance and that kind of rubbed me the wrong way and I got pissed off about it and got really down in the dumps about it and for me when I get upset about things I just shut down I get really quiet keep to myself wait for the storm to pass and then I'm good I noticed when I was younger like high school late high school into college it was about a day it was about a day that I would like take you know and just kind of grump over it but I wake up in the morning and I'm good to go. I've noticed in my mid to late 20s and, and early 30s that it takes a little longer, which is it's frustrating because I really try not to hold grudges. I try not to get upset about things and I really, you know, live and let live, say la vie, that kind of thing, and try to move on it. But man, you know, it gets, it's weird. It's like that, uh, that quote from Malcolm in the Middle where I expect nothing and I'm still disappointed. You know, I try just to take every uh, day as its own lifetime. And then when I go to sleep at night, I wake up, it's brand new, everything starts fresh. But sometimes things rub you the wrong way. But if we all try to live that life, that mindset of every day is its own lifetime, you could really accomplish a lot. Your mind will allow you to accomplish a whole lot more than if you kind of take it longer. Me personally, I look at where I was couple years ago so where I am right now you know I've got a good job with the police department here in southwest Florida Uh, I've got girlfriend that I'm crazy about We're, we're making big strides in our relationship and things are nice things are very good things are very positive I think of where I was four years ago um Actually, we'll take a step back. We'll see where I was like six, well, four years ago, before I even met my girlfriend. Um, I was really coming to my own at the police department I was working in. And I was, but you know, I, I still had needs and wants. You know, I was, I, I wasn't really dating anybody. Uh, my, my father had just passed away, so I was dealing with some of that. Um, I was dealing with my sister and I, we used to joke and say that we were, you know, we were orphans because both of our parents were passed away. Um, so I was dealing with that. 
but there were there were voids in my life, things like that. And then I think, you know, where was I two years prior to that? I was a part-time police officer. I was unhappy. I was single. Um, I was unhappy with work, my personal life, everything. I was just not happy. I was living with my sister uh, in her house, which was, you know, it was good to be around my family, but it was not fulfilling to me. There was a missing piece because I wanted to be, you know, this, this grown up quote unquote and on my own and all these things, because a couple years prior, I had someone, uh, a, a contemporary of mine saying that you're not a real man. If you don't own your own car, own your own place, yada, yada, yada. And for some reason, this person who I have not talked to in seven plus years, those words have always been drilled in my head. So now that I have accomplished all those things, I now it's a win, even though that person was so insignificant over the entire thing. But, it, you know, I think of where I was when I graduated high school. So what I want you guys to do is really just see how far you've come, right? You've accomplished a whole lot more. And I've said it before, I'll say it again. You've, you've outlived every single one of your bad days and you continue to do it. You're doing a great job. So it would be a disservice to yourself to the people around you, your family, your loved ones, if you don't take a minute every once in a while to go, wow, look what I have here. You know, it's it's a great reminder that, hey, sometimes life can kick you in the balls, but every once in a while, we get a good shot ourselves. I just wanted to give that to you guys today. Put that in your brain, make you start thinking about it, because that's kind of something that when I'm sitting here and I'm, I'm meal prepping with my girlfriend and I just look at what we have and, and what I have, Specifically, it kind of gets you that, that welled up feeling in your chest. And it makes me happy. It does. And I think we all just need to be happy. And that's a good way for it. On to bigger and better things. Now is time for my interview with Ms. Ginny Burton from Seattle, Washington. Uh, an amazing story you're going to hear about in just a few minutes. So please sit down, uh, put your volume up, and enjoy my conversation with Ms. Ginny Burton. Tell us where you're from, what you want to become, and we'll say if you're okay. Where did you go to school? Right answer and you're cool. Yeah, you're the kid the whole day. You get a sticker in your face, information about the case, so you know your potential. Don't you think you can extend? Don't you think you can extend? Just comprehend, cause I don't want to hear it. Not more than I accept Cause I don't care where I belong no more What we share or not I will ignore Will ignore All right, we are back And joining me, this is a very special conversation Took us a while to get it scheduled and get it all right but that's okay because good things come to those who wait uh we have jenny burton how are you i'm doing well thank you so much for having me on absolutely thank you for uh putting up with my crazy schedule and uh <laughs> sticking through and, and making this happen well yeah mine's just as crazy so i think we actually sort of um came together when we both had a free moment so it worked out well yes I think so as well. I think, you know, like phone tag, but this was like scheduling tag. But again, it worked well. And uh, I'm happy to talk to you and looking forward to this conversation. So um, just a little backstory. I found out about you and your story through 
Honestly, I don't know. It was something that came up on my Facebook. It was like one of those, someone shared a, a post and I read it and it was, it was absolutely inspiring and just so interesting. And I was like, all right, let me, let me uh, search her on Instagram, see if I can find her. I found a page. I wasn't sure if it was the correct one or if it was a fake one or whatever. And I was like, all right, I'm going to shoot my shot. And sure enough, it was you. And I'm so excited to share your story. So I don't want to take any, anything away from you. So I'll go ahead and let you introduce yourself and tell your story. Okay, wonderful. Thanks so much. Um, so I'm Jenny Burton, and I was I was born uh, to a couple of drug addict parents, and um, despite my best intentions, my life followed down the same path. Um, I was quite familiar with um, drugs and the criminal justice system at a really young age, and um, even though those things weren't attractive to me, I ended up following following suit along with my parents and and many others that I experienced in life. And um, by the time I was a teenager, I, I knew that I would be spending time inside of a correctional facility uh, because of my life patterns and choices. And so a whole lot of years of addiction and incarceration uh, brought me to this really crazy place where I am today. Um, at the age of 40, I was homeless on drugs. I had married the guy that shot and killed my son's dad in 1991, and it turned out just as bad as it sounds. Um, and I found myself in the back of a cop car for the last time. And which I just want to say, I have so much gratitude um, that while I was in my disease, in my active addiction, that drug use and criminal behavior surrounding drug use was criminal at the time because without the intervention of police, I wouldn't be where I am today. And for anybody that hasn't heard my story, where I am today is light years away from, from where I was. I made the decision in 2016 after being violently beaten in my home. Uh, I was clean and sober for almost four years. I was raising my daughter. I was working in a social, social service setting. Um, the man that I was with broke into my home, intoxicated, and severely beat me. Um, and the entire assault was caught on 911 tape. And, um, you know, I, I thought that that would be the tipping point for me that would send me into this place where I just wasn't able to function, care for myself or my family, um, just because of the tremendous amount of trauma that I've experienced throughout my life. And, um, and instead, what happened was that's when I actually took control of my life. I made a decision to prosecute him. And then in that process, uh, along with working in social services and recognizing that I wasn't actually helping people solve their problems, I made the decision to go back to school. And um, I started to graduate with honors each quarter. And I won some pretty prestigious scholarships. And I applied to the University of Washington. I was being recruited by Ivy League colleges. And um, I just excelled. And um, and I started on this journey, not only towards self-mastery, but also toward trying to change some aspects of our criminal justice system in a way that helps people get their lives together, which, and I just want to say this loud and clear, does not include abolishing incarceration. It includes creating an accountability um, aspect, uh, rehabilitative aspect to that entire process. And, and so in saying that, um, you know, I, I never thought that my life would amount to anything. And, um, you know, the, what you're referring to, you know, with my story, um, 
I, you know, as I was getting ready to graduate with my bachelor's degree, I had uh, employed a friend to take my graduation photos. And, and I had a picture of uh, one of my lowest moments in active addiction. It was in 2005. I had a mug shot and I was less than a hundred pounds. I was doing a tremendous amount of heroin and cocaine and committing crimes. And, and, um, and you could see the tattoo on my neck on, uh, in both photos. And there was such a tremendous contrast between the photos that I felt compelled to do a collage and post those photos, um, to try to encourage a lot of my friends that are still in active addiction or still have cycles of, of criminal behavior that are causing them to become incarcerated. And I posted those on my Facebook and, uh, and, and those pictures have, um, gained a tremendous amount of traction worldwide and which is how you found me. And, um, mm -hmm. you know, so yeah, I have somehow become the face of the possibility of change worldwide. And it's been um, a blessing and it's been a challenge. And, uh, and in that process, I've gotten the opportunity to participate in different kind of podcasts and, and um, news shows and things like that. So thank you so much for asking me to tell my story in a nutshell. That's kind of where it's at. Yeah, no, absolutely. And and again, thank you so much for sharing. Now, um, you know, my podcast, uh, of course, my listeners know very law enforcement centric. I have a lot of law enforcement officers that listen um, and, and non-law enforcement, of course. Um, but what I think is important for law enforcement to understand, and one of the reasons why I want to have this conversation was, you know, we deal with, with people that are dealing with addiction all day, and we deal with the ramifications of their addiction as well. Um, you know, like you said, the cycle of criminal activity that comes from addiction. And several episodes ago, um, I had kind of tried to explain that to my listeners, because whenever you bring up uh, drug addiction and drug use and the criminal element that comes with it, a lot of people say that drug drug abuse is not and drug addiction is not a victim or is a victimless crime. And I'm trying to explain that it's not. It's, it's very much, you know, there are victims to it. The user itself is a victim. Um, so that's why I was really interested in speaking to you. Um, one of many reasons, of course. So what was it? Now, you said that when you made the decision to, um, uh, you were four years uh, clean and you were already working with social services. What was it, though, that got you to that point? What made you decide that, all right, I'm going to I'm going to get clean. I'm going to stay sober and, and change my life. What was what was that moment? Yeah, well, so that's a really big question, actually. And. And I, and I wish I could sum it up to one very small moment. However, you know, there were a succession of events that happened over a period of, of years. And, and so when I, when I actually made the decision to use, I had placed myself in a relationship with somebody that um, our dynamic was volatile and um, the relationship very quickly turned violent. And um, when I made the decision to pick up drugs, it was mostly to escape the reality that I was living in. And even though I didn't want to use, I was very well aware that I was an addict, but uh, I seemed to have little control over my decision in that moment. And then once I started, I couldn't stop. So, um, so I was, it was almost like, you know, the real true part of myself that exists was trapped inside of this prison of my larger self, of my ego, of my decisions, of my patterns and my habits. And, um, 
And once you put drugs in your body, most addicts, the majority of addicts that I know, but I'll speak specifically about myself, my mind will quickly snap into this place of where, how am I going to get what I need now? That usually translates into who am I going to victimize? And so um, I don't like living in that place, but I cannot control myself when I'm in addiction. And this is, and this sort of connects with what you were previously talking about. But, um, you know, the entire time that I was in addiction at that point, that I was in my active addiction at that point, um, I wished that I was somewhere else, but I did not have the fortitude to make a change in my patterns and, and decisions. And so, um, so when I was arrested, um, it was, it was actually a huge relief. So, um, and it was in that moment, even though I really on the exterior did not want to be arrested, my interior true self, um, was really grateful and knew that it was over. And so it was in that moment that I made the decision. Um, when I knew I wasn't going anywhere, when I was placed in the back of the cop car and I knew that my bail was going to be high, I knew that I was free. I had been previously being terrorized by my husband. I was terrorizing people in society. I was victimizing a tremendous amount of people, committing crimes and things like that. I had abandoned my children. I hated the person that I was. And I personally needed to have my disease arrested, which looks like me being physically separated from the chaos, the environment, and the drugs. And so, um, so once I was actually set free from that chaos by being incarcerated, that's when I made the decision. And I knew that I was going to continue to decide one day at a time to not put drugs in my body. It didn't matter whether I was going to prison. It didn't matter whether I would get some sort of deal, which I did not expect to have happen. I figured I was going back to prison for the fourth time. And so it was on that day, and it was December 5th of 2012, that that process started and so by the time you know uh i had gotten to that place where i was almost four years clean and i was working in social services that was just a progression of making that decision one day at a time up to that point and recognizing how much i personally had destroyed my own life and mm -hmm. affected the lives of so many people around me when you know, I was in active addiction. So does that kind of, is that sort of a long route to answer your question? Absolutely. And, and, you know, I, I I'm all about taking the long route to things. Cause you know, I understand that it's not just one thing that triggers a yeah. tremendous change. Um, so that's fine. You know, if you want, you can talk for a whole two hours, I'm good with it. Um, <laughs> but, but you know, it's, I loved hearing that because so there's a there's a young girl that I've dealt with in, in my law enforcement career. Um, I'm currently on patrol, but uh, a year ago I was working narcotics and there was a young girl, an addict that we've arrested again and again and again and again. And um, say very similar thing like, you know, she she used so much so many drugs and so much narcotics that you could tell that like her mind was slipping, yeah. which is, which is terrible because she was, she's younger than I am, you know, she's yeah. in her, I think mid twenties now. Um, but you know, you, you, you think, especially in law enforcement, you're like, how did we, or at least I do at least, how did we get here? Like why, you know? So there was one time, uh, she had overdosed and, um, it was a violation of her probation to use narcotics. So I was sitting with her in the hospital, basically waiting for her to clear, to take her to jail. And I was like, why? I said, you know, you know, the end of this, you know, you got, you got saved by Narcan, but you know that the end of your story, the way it's going is 
death. Like th- there's yeah. no positive outcome. And she was like, you know, I, I want to get clean. I want to be, you know, safe and everything, everything that you just said. And I, it's, it's so difficult, I think, for a lot of law enforcement to see these people that they uh, incarcerate and everything on a daily basis and, and realize that no one wants to be a drug addict. No one mm-hmm. wants to be stuck in this addiction. And it is, it's an illness for sure. Mm-hmm. Um, but the way that you said it, that, you know, by you being sent to prison and not getting a deal and things like that saved your life. And I've said that to people before, cause they're like, Oh, why are you arresting this guy for possession? I'm like, because when he's inside, mm-hmm. he's not overdosing, he's not dying. Like there's, yeah. it's, it's for the better. And of course not victimizing society. So the fact that you said that was, it just blew my mind. Cause that's just been my thought process. So to hear it coming from you is just, you know, it kind of, it's, it's a message that I want law enforcement to know, you know, like this, yeah. No, no one wants to be in that predicament. Yeah. No, that I, I think so. I think that's very true. And, and I think right now what we're experiencing, especially in a lot of major cities on the West Coast that are experiencing a tremendous amount of homelessness, there's this narrative that's being pushed that says that you have to wait until they're ready. Well, I was ready long before I was ever able to stop. I was ready. I just couldn't stop myself. And that's what I'm hearing you say about that girl. And, you know, addiction is a really big beast. And, you know, I think that the biggest missing component is, is that when you place people inside of jail and prison, you know, what's, what's next, right? And so that's where we're really failing as a system. Um, we need to mandate rehabilitative services that address the underlying causes, that address the addiction, that address, you know, gaps in our foundational understanding of relationships, because so many people either A, have been in addiction so long that they've lost their awareness around their foundational learning, or they were never taught, which was my case. And, and I can tell you that I've worked with so many folks that are inside of prisons and that are getting out, uh, that have similar stories that have been in and out multiple times. But when you go in, there's nothing that's mandatory and nothing that helps unless you're court ordered, uh, to a treatment program or something like that. And those programs are usually very short lived. There's Mm -hmm. nobody's teaching anybody how to progress to the next level upon their release. And I think that's where, you know, it's kind of like putting your kid on a timeout with a with a task right with writing sentences like our teachers at least my teachers used to do that to us when we were kids because we're creating patterns of awareness right when we're actually um requiring certain things and and as a society right now we call compassion just allowing people to spiral into these you know areas of self-destruction which is problematic but i could go on and on forever about this but you know um I, if there was a message that I could give to law enforcement, it would be thank you so much because the work that you do actually does matter. That I am so grateful that um, that there there were laws against even the, some of the smallest things that I was doing because a it made it that much harder for me to do what I was doing in public areas, and b it gave me the opportunity to not just be arrested but to have my disease arrested. And what that's given me another opportunity to do is have a seat at the table to participate in the conversation, you know, when it comes to policy change and things like that. And my ultimate goal is to lead those conversations and lead that mm-hmm. policy change. That's great. And I think it's ironic, maybe ironic, maybe maybe coincidental that you are in Washington State. And, you know, Washington State has been all over the news over their uh, their drug laws and, and, you know, what's going on with theirs. So, you know, you said uh, earlier about um, 
not abolishing incarceration. So what is your take on, you know, this decriminalization movement that's going on through Washington and all those states? Well, I think I was probably one of the first and only people to speak out against it um, with the Seattle City Council. I showed up at one of their meetings um, and I represented a population of former criminals or criminals. And I let them know very clearly, like, this is a terrible idea. They wanted to defund the police at over 50%. They wanted to, well, in which I believe they have moved forward on um, not only taking away misdemeanor charges that are connected to things like theft, but publicizing it prior to the law actually being changed, which is an invitation Mm -hmm. to bring more people into the fold. And what I let them know very specifically is, hi, I've been to prison a number of times. I have 17 felony convictions. And I can promise you right now that the decisions that you're making would invite a person such as myself to come and victimize your society to the utmost of my ability if in fact I were in active addiction right now. And then we've watched as um, retail theft rings have exploded and murder and assault rates have increased and property crimes have shot through the roof. But because there are crimes that aren't being um, prosecuted at this point, uh, they're also, the data's not necessarily being collected appropriately. So um, I'm, I'm absolutely against it. I think, and on a on a human level, on a progressive note, I would have to say, um, I would say that what we're actually doing is we're prohibiting people such as myself that are in active addiction, we're prohibiting their opportunity to actually improve their lives because mm-hmm. we're leaving them alone to die. We're literally loving people to death. Yeah, absolutely. And it's, it's, it's veiled, like you said, it's veiled under compassion, um, but it's not, it's, it's, it's mind boggling to me. Now I'm, I'm like the exact opposite end of the spectrum. I'm in Florida. So, you know, laws are still relatively strong here, but it's mind boggling to me that, you know, the citizens that live in your state and in similar communities like it, you're not Mm -hmm. the only one, um, Allow it. Like you think of the the law abiding public that are the victims of these crimes, you know, the the shop owners or the people that whose cars are getting broken into things like that. And they're like, yeah, no, that's perfectly fine that for my city council to do that. I have no problem with that. Yeah. I, what, what we're actually doing is um, it's kind of interesting that we're changing the narrative around, right? That criminals are victims and citizens are criminals essentially when they are speaking out in their own defense. Uh, When they're asking to be protected, they are shunned, they're ostracized, they're publicly shamed. And then we're encouraging further victimization of citizens, of the larger portion of the population, in order to support a sickness that doesn't even allow, at least in the city of Seattle, it doesn't even allow our kids to go into parks by themselves anymore because they're overrun with tent cities, junkies, prostitution, assaults, and things like that. Yeah, I, I mean, it's it's insane. It's um, it's not safe. It's no. like they're trying to make these these types of cities like like leper islands. You know, like we're just going to send all of our criminals here. They can run amok. They can have a great time. Um, but as obviously at the moment, there's still there's still a law abiding public. There's business owners. There's there's businessmen and women. Obviously, Seattle's a huge city. There's so much going on there, so much commerce and things like that that goes along. But you've got this 
underlying, almost overlying issue right now that no one wants to actually fix. They're just going to kind of, you know, keep placating and keep coddling this problem. And it's, it, I think it's going to be a great day when people such as yourself do lead that forefront and um, say like, what, what are you guys doing? This, this needs to stop. What are we, like you want to help these people, then help them, let them get arrested, let them seek yeah. or be, be forced to take rehabilitation services and stuff like that. I mean, you're, you're, yeah. you're absolutely right. Yeah. And I think we need to implement those kind of processes in the homeless sector, as well as in the correctional sector, because um, they're similar institutions. Um, and I've been very intimately related with both institutions, both as participant and as, uh, you know, a service provider. And yeah, we're just, um, we're really sort of disabling people from, from being able to function appropriately. And when I think of these sort of things, like I think about how, and I would always encourage, and I do always encourage folks in society to think of it the same way. Like what, what if it was your child? Would you address this problem the same way? Because it, I think it's our job to be the village. And uh, well, I think when it comes to parenting, we just we don't let our kids just run off willy-nilly and do whatever and just support their decisions. We, we try to provide guidance and instruction and support so that they can become the best that they can be. And I don't understand why we don't look at loving people in society in the same exact way. Yeah, I, I think you're absolutely right. And and the, the judicial system and the correctional system, uh, but, you know, the correctional and law enforcement soci- side of the justice system, they're, they're puppets, right? Like the, yeah. the string pullers are the, are the, um, the prosecutors, the judges. And the problem with those is that when it comes down to something quote unquote simple possession or some, one of the crimes that you were saying it's catch and release. Like, yeah, the, right. the cop's going to spend all this time, you know, making, making his arrest, doing his paperwork, making sure it's good and solid for the judge to be, to sit there and go, all right, time served. Have a nice day. Right. And it's, it's accomplishing nothing. It's a waste of time. And, you know, the, the politicians like to say that we're um, locking up people with illnesses. Uh, we're, we have a, um, uh, corporate prison system. And it's like, no, you idiots. It's, it's so much more than that. And and people just refuse to see that. Yeah. You know, and so what that makes me think about, so there's this narrative that's being pushed and, and I feel like a lot of the times narratives begin in academic settings. I just spent two years at the university of Washington and, and it's a fantastic school. However, there is a narrative that's being pushed, you know, about a lot of these things that is, it's actually, I think what is, sort of creating the problem. And I can't necessarily say it originated there, but it does seem that oh, you know, there's a massive amount of indoctrination that occurs that says, you know, ethics uh, fall into this category, that you can't force people, that people have rights and, you know, never mind um, our Bill of Rights and never mind that when a person commits a crime, they, they essentially uh, give up their rights to certain things because they've made these decisions to victimize people. Mm-hmm. And we're just really not holding anybody accountable to any of those things. And, and we're really functioning backwards. And um, what I've recognized to be the common thread is that there is no interaction with people with lived experience that, and I mean, lived experience that is paralleled to folks that have been on the streets or in active addiction for a really long time. Um, we do definitely have some people in positions in Washington state that have been to prison or that have some 
small amount of experience with active addiction, but um, but they're not on the, I guess, the extreme end of the pendulum or the extreme end of the spectrum when it comes to their experience. And so, and they are sort of, and I think they're sort of um, falling in line with the academic perspective, which I don't agree with. I just, mm-hmm. I don't agree with it. There's a lack of accountability and a lack of interaction with people with adequate lived experience to be able to say, you know what, that's a bad idea. Um, this has been my experience, you know, uh, and this is what I've seen across the board for, you know, for me personally, 40 plus years, I was born into it. I'll be 50 years old next year. And, Mm. and I have a really long history of engaging with criminal societies. I was raised by bikers. I was raised in drug houses. I've seen some, some of the worst things that a person could possibly imagine. And that'll come out in my book in a couple of years after I've finished writing it. But, um, you know, and most of the people that are making decisions, they have absolutely no idea the reality of the underworld or these, you know, other sects of society and what they Mm -hmm. actually look like while functioning. So I don't know if that all made sense, but I think it probably did to you. No, it absolutely did. And I'm sure my listeners are like, screaming into their speakers right now like yes finally someone gets it because it it, you know it's like and and this goes for anything right the the policy makers or the rule makers aren't the ones in the trenches whatever whatever the trench may be right and you know when you talk about academics and i've been in there too i you know i was i was in my early 20s which i i maintain is too young to be sitting in an advanced uh, learning institution, but I was sitting there and I was hearing their narrative and hearing their rhetoric and I was going, hell yeah, hell yeah, hell yeah. And you know, that was big when the Occupy movement was big and everything. And I bought into it for all about a year. And I was like, wait, none of this makes sense. That's exactly what happened for me. My second year at UW, I was like, wait a minute, Jenny, you have life experience that contradicts all of this stuff. Yep. And with me, so I was in college and the 2008 economic crisis came and kicked me out of college. So when Occupy came out and I was like, yeah, those those bastards kicked me out of school. And I was like, yeah, we'll, we'll torch the city. And then I was like, wait a second. No. Cause you know, like then, then the, the reason and the logic comes out, but that's exactly it. You know um, it's just very interesting. They know. And by they, I don't, I don't know who the metaphorical they is, but they know exactly what to say to kind of yes. get you on board. Yeah. And then it, it takes someone with, you know, a little bit of intellect to go, wait, no, that's not what I wanted to do at all. Yeah. That's, <laughs> but the, the problem is finding those people with that intellect, everyone else, you know, they're sheep. They'll just go where they're being led. It is. And they're the ones that are going to be running the country in another 10 years. Yep. So, yep. and that's another reality that, that I have that I've tried to express during my last year of college and where I, I really said, you know, all the students that were protesting and fighting against the war in the 60s and the 70s, they're all politicians running our country right now. So Mm -hmm. all of the things that you intelligent, brilliant young people are doing, how is it any different than anything that's already taken place? It's not. We're repeating the same cycle. Yep. And it's very funny. So last year, obviously, to be a police officer was hell on earth. Um, And to relax, 
I went home and I put on Netflix and I watched serial killer documentaries. But that's <laughs> that has something totally to do about myself. But the, what I did notice is that the surge of serial killers happened in the 1970s. That's Ooh. when it all started. And what happened in the 1970s? Well, that was after all of the riots in the 60s. So right. it literally goes, it's all cyclical. Because now, you know, because when the police don't want to work, they don't want to act. Well, then it's just, it's open season. Everyone's going to go out and do what they want to do. And, and I mean, that's, when you look at crime rates right now, you look at everything, it, it's yeah. terrible. Well, and in the police's defense, um, you know, I would probably reframe that statement, right? Where it's like not necessarily that they don't want to. I mean, so for example, I've interacted with so many police officers during my time working in social services. They were some of my best allies. And as the city attorney for Seattle continued to take away their autonomy and actually fulfilling their duties, um, Mm -hmm. their hands were tied. So, you know, when a person is reprimanded for doing their job, I think it's more about what they're actually not able to do as opposed to what they don't want to do, because I can tell you that more police than not wanted to be able to help folks by removing them from the situation because they actually do care about a lot of the citizens, at least in my experience, but their hands are tied. And so they can't actually make any kind of difference for the people that are being victimized or for the people that are victimizing themselves. And which makes me go back to the statement where he said, you know, addiction is not a victimless it's not a victimless crime. Like as an addict myself, I was victimizing myself. I victimized my family and I victimized all of the people that I stole their identities, that I stole their vehicles, uh, that I broke into their homes or their businesses, that I forged their checks. Like those people were all being victimized because of drug addiction. Yep. Oh my God. There's so much you just said that I want to unbox. Uh, (laughs) But if uh, everyone listening, if you go back, I'll have to play it. But I said that exact thing when I was going on my rants about drugs not being victimless. That's exactly what I said. And those are the people that are the victims, the family, the self, and everyone that, you know, whatever crime was committed to them. Um, And you're right. When when it comes to law enforcement and um, doing their job, um, I didn't, I, you know, I didn't want to say they don't want to do their job, but it comes to a point, like you said, when you get um, in trouble, when you get slapped on the wrist, where your empathy becomes apathy. It's yes. like, why, why do I want to do this? You know, it's it's a waste of my time. Again, catch and release. Yeah. So you're absolutely right. What I was wondering though, so you know, you said that you worked with law enforcement when you were in social services, but just to take a step back, what was it with your interactions while you were in active addiction? that was the positive impact on you? I mean, specifically it was arrest. And, you know, um, I, of course, you see a cop car and you're an addict. And for me, I'm trying to go the other way. I was frequently driving stolen cars or I definitely always had drugs on me or some form of something that was a felony and usually a warrant, at least one. So, Mm -hmm. um, but being able, and I am really easy to identify in drug addiction because I look immediately emaciated. I'm already tall and thin, but when I'm on drugs, the color leaves my skin and I just, I look like I'm an addict. I look like an addict and uh, which encourages interactions with law enforcement because I think, you know, I don't think it's a far stretch. I can tell you right now when I see somebody on drugs, I'm pretty sure like I look at them and I know they're up to something like they've got something going Mm -hmm. on that they shouldn't be doing. I can only remember one time when the interaction was negative, but I also took four different police stations. It was Lakewood police, Tacoma police, 
the state patrol and Pierce County sheriffs, I took them on a high-speed chase where I endangered a number of people. And so when I smashed into a telephone pole, they were pretty pissed off because I had sure. created such a, a negative situation. I had a broken arm and they put me in handcuffs and the the um, fire department was super pissed about it. But uh, And they definitely cussed me out, but that was probably one of my most negative interactions. And that's because, I I mean, what's the point of trying to fight the police, right? I'm totally going to get my ass kicked if I try to fight the police. So I don't really want to get my ass kicked. So my, my interactions were always positive. And, but I had a number of different interactions, especially when I was very young, where police were really respectful to me and, and they would talk to me. Uh, there were times where I was being beaten by my first husband and, um, you know, either somebody else would call the cops or something would happen. And, and I remember they really were trying to help me. Yes, they wanted me to testify against him in some crimes that he they knew was him. And I was the only person that could. And of course, I was not participating in that. But, you know, ultimately, reflecting back on it now, they really wanted to be able to help me. And because I was a little girl, I was a young girl and, um, and they, and they expressed their concern. They said, one day we're going to come and you're going to be beaten to death. Like you're going to be dead. And so, um, so I really believe that police have the best of intentions. And so, you know, the interactions, including the arrests, I, I believe we're all with the intention to, to help me. I don't think that any of it was you know, of negative vendetta or that because people hated me, even though my perception was probably very skewed back then. So, right. Right. And I, I think it's very funny, not funny. That's not the right word, but we're interesting. <laughs> interesting. Yes. It's very interesting that you're flat out saying like, well, you know, they were probably looking at me like a criminal because I was a criminal. Like you were in that mindset <laughs> yeah. going like, yeah, no, I get, yes. And uh, it's something that the general public doesn't understand. They're like, oh man, why are you picking on this homeless person again? Well, unfortunately, they're the ones committing the crimes. Like, I don't right. you know. I don't know what to tell you. It's not. Um, I had a ride along in my police car several years ago, and she was. This is like when the anti-police uh, narrative was kind of waning. It, it was, you know, obviously not where we are now, but um, but she was very against the police. And so her one of her biggest questions to me was. Um, what what is the difference between the poor neighborhoods and the uh the more well-off neighborhoods and i was like the amount of money in their bank account i was like it doesn't matter like crime is crime like crime will follow it but what happens is the uh motivations for those crimes and you know when you when you kind of get to the uh the poorer section of town or or you know where there's a higher po uh, homeless population when you arrest people you know, they're not going to be extorting millions of dollars like a white collar crime. They're going to be doing whatever they need to either get food or to feed their addiction. And, you know, she didn't understand that. But when I said it, she was like, oh, that makes so much sense. And the, it just made me realize that the public doesn't get it. You know, they just see yeah. what is fed to them. And that's it. It is true. And, you know, everybody wants to believe everything that they hear and see. I think a lot of that has to do with. Well, we're lazy, right? We want to get our information in an easy way. We don't have to put in the effort to understand or learn or research. So we're just going to believe, and I see this so much, and I've really sort of beat my 15-year-old over the head with, you need to do the 
the research yourself. You need to look at all sure. sides of everything. You need to don't just believe something because somebody's telling you that. Because your teacher, which I think is such a crock when people are teaching biased political information in schools, mm-hmm. but that's another conversation. Um, you know, when they're when they're feeding the information to their students, or you know, when information being fed on a multitude of different ways on social media, you know, and I think that mass quantity usually equals credibility to people so they're just sort of sucking in the information like it's accurate yep and I, you know it's so it's so telling when a when a headline comes out that's all people read they're not going to read uh-huh. the full news article and i even saw on several news websites you go to the you click on it because you actually want to read and find out what's going on god forbid someone actually can read these days but <laughs> uh, you go on these news websites and it'll say right next right under the byline it'll say this will take approximately four minutes to read so right. now oh I, I only got 30 seconds i'm not going to look at it that's gone never going to see it again right and i'm like how is this helping anything you know and and right. it's just and everything is so diluted. Like, you know, you can't read news on a website anymore because they want to charge you, you know, New York Times or even just the local newspaper here. Uh, you can't read it until it's uh, until you have a subscription, which is just ridiculous. Yeah. So now we have to rely on things like BuzzFeed, where everything is just in a 10 point list. Like, oh, what's the, what's the 10 best, you know, types of clam chowder? I don't know. But right. it's just, you know, the the actual information out there and no one has the time or so they say to do their own research they're going to read the headlines and that's it and it's so unfortunate and it's unfortunate to you know all of society at this point because we're just we're going so far back it's terrible yes i we're removing ourselves from reality in in, with consent which is i think extremely problematic yes yep you, you know and uh one of my favorite speakers, you know, I could I could label him as a comedian, but my favorite speaker is George Carlin. And one of his yeah. uh, specials before he passed said that is that, you know, the higher ups in America, they they rely on the public being willfully ignorant. And that is 100 yes. percent what we are. Yeah. And I think the more that we automate things, the more that we make life accessible at the touch of our hand. Uh, the more we're separating ourselves with reality and uh, it's kind of like, you know, for me personally, I'm a mountain. I've turned into a mountain person, which has connected me with the universe in such a different way. But, um, you know, it's kind of like placing feet and feet and feet of concrete between you and the earth. And that's what we're doing with all of the access to information and, you know, wanting everything to happen quickly. We want an instantaneous life. So, and we reject right, gratification. Oh, absolutely. And we're, we, we reject anything that takes effort. So yeah. Yeah. Any, yep. Everything that takes effort and, you know, things like algorithms where you're only going to see what you are already predisposed to agreeing with. Right. Um, which I don't want. I want counter arguments. I want people yeah. to tell me, you know, give me, but not, not just like regurgitate a nonsense. Give me a, a factual reason why I should not agree with what I agree with or what, you know, whatever. Right. And I will support that. I'm a hundred percent. I'm prove. I always, I, Whenever I do a DUI case and uh, people are, you know, kind of on the 
edge about should I do the field sobriety exercise or not? I say, hey, this is your chance to prove me wrong. And I would love nothing more than to be wrong. And you can just go on your way. Yeah. And that's that's how I feel about life. Like, prove me wrong. I'm all for yeah. it. Um, yeah, absolutely. I, it, because I'm totally open to receiving information that is contrary to what I personally believe. And what that does is like, like that expands us as human beings. Exactly. And, and, and no one and Maybe everybody is so... now i you know it's just everyone is so excited to get in their echo chamber and hear the same thing again and again and i'm like no let's let's not let's open the conversation you know um that's why i love having conversations with people all over the country such as yourself that'll give me different perspectives and then i can take these conversations and give them to other people yes because you know they're it's so important it's so important and it's not being done enough yeah, I would have to agree with that, especially right now. And I, I think like one of the things that's happening right now is that we have, I think we probably have more significant amount of society that is opposing a lot of what's happening, but people are really afraid to speak out right now because they're mm-hmm. afraid of, you know, what they're going to have to face, be ostracized, be shamed, be shut out. Like we've been watching a multitude of things that have you know, sort of, and I don't want to necessarily name all of the things because people get pretty angry, but, yeah, um, you know, we have a number of things that have occurred that have, you know, have retroactive effects that have destroyed people's lives, um, things that people sign on to where, you know, maybe one person says, oh, this happened to me, and then other people are like, yeah, that happened to me too, and now we're just going to make a decision as a society that if anybody says that happened to them, that whoever did it doesn't matter if it was 20 to 25 years ago, we're going to mm. make sure that we destroy their entire lives. And so, you know, and we're seeing that happen now even more so. And so it's, I think people are just scared. Like we're living in a time where people are really afraid to actually speak out. Yeah, you're absolutely right. But I think it's almost to the point of, you know, oh my God, we could have an entire conversation about this. Like, you know, when you said that, I, I immediately went to the Me Too movement and the cancel yes. culture that came from that. Yes. Um, well, that's what I was thinking about. But I was just like, okay, okay. should I start um, naming things? I don't know. No, and no, I'm going to say, I know I'm a victim of sexual assault. You know, yeah. I mean, like brutal sexual assaults. But what I can tell you, I did not sign on to that movement. And then I have reasons why I didn't, you know. Uh-huh. No, and I think what it was, you know, and this is, please, again, tell me if I'm wrong here because I'm, I'm, in the minority in this part of the conversation. But what I think it was with that movement was it was a payout. It was people were starting to see that that was the fatty calf. Like I, Hey, if I can say that I was a victim, I can get a payout and so on and so forth. Yeah. Yeah. Here we go. So yeah. (laughs) For me as a woman who's experienced brutal sexual assault at some point and things like that, it was, I was offended at some of what was going on, that there were retroactive reactions. When I know that a lot of the people that had spoke out, A, yes, did get paid out, but they consented willfully in a non-violent setting to participate to progress themselves. And then mm-hmm. they retroactively mm-hmm. came back and tried to sign on for something else. And I find that to be, as a woman that has had no consent, 
and beaten and things like that, like that to me was offensive. And, and so when people tried to get me to participate in those hashtags, I was like, you need to just stay away from me with that stuff. I just couldn't, <laughs> couldn't participate right. in that. Right, right. I mean, that's, that's very well said. And then, so, you know, you think of that movement and then you can move on to what we dealt with last year with police yeah. brutality. Now, suddenly everyone was a victim of police brutality and it's like, what? Like, where, where did all this come from? And, and I'm not saying that there are instances of police brutality or racial injustice. I'm not saying that right. it doesn't exist. Of course not. I'm it just ha- saying it happens that because people are human. Of right. course, of course. But it's and, not every you know, cop. That, I mean, the instances of police killings are minute in comparison to our population in the United States, number one. Yes. Um, the majority of my friends that I grew up with and hung out with were black. None of them got killed by the cops. Um, mm-hmm. You know, I've been arrested with a number of them. And so I'm, I'm just so, which I'm not saying that it doesn't happen. And, but yeah, it's a lot of times things get extremely exaggerated. And, you know, my, my opinion on that stuff is like, okay, so you just hold people accountable, you know, you do this. Exactly. And it's, yeah, you hold people accountable and it makes people make different kinds of decisions. Really simple. Yep. And the, the kind of juxtaposition of the conversation is like, all right, I wouldn't say that all minorities are criminals. I would never do that. But at the same time don't say that all police officers are racist or or brutal or things like that. It's the exact same conversation that we're having back and forth. Yeah. And I think you, yeah. So that brings up something for me. It's we as a society tend to point fingers, paste labels, and then not choose to not be aware of how we are progressing the same exact narrative of those we're accusing of other things, if that makes sense. Mm -hmm. And that is exactly what's happening in our society right now. So everybody that says that the police are doing this, they're actually doing the same thing in return. If we all saw it on national news with chalk, you know, oh, we F the police, we're not letting them in here. Uh, And then, you know, they're walking around with semi-automatic and automatic weapons, Mm. policing people and being violent. And then as people start to get killed in that small area, denying police access, even though they're the ones that call the police. So, I mean, like, are we really paying attention to what we're doing? You know, it's baffling to me. It it truly is. And, you know, when you think of Chaz, the... um, one of the most, you know, like Truman show moments of that entire thing is like, what is going on here was they were marching out this guy who was saying some uh, religious beliefs and they were marching him out of there and they were doing the exact same thing that they were saying that the police do. And I was just like, right. I was like, I was like raising my hand. I was like, is anyone paying attention? Like, hello. (laughs) Are we not looking at everything as though, hello, it's human nature. Like we, as a species, like create these hierarchies. It's not like the police didn't create themselves on a whim. The police mm-hmm. haven't like, a, you know, adopted on this new mindset or behavior that we don't actually do naturally as a human species. And now it's, it's unbelievable to me. I just honestly, sure. I, I want to, sometimes I just, I'm like, I just want to pack a backpack and go into the mountains and <laughs> never come out. And just not come back. 
Yeah, I, I agree. And that's I think that's why so many law enforcement officers, when they retire, that's exactly what they do. They'll go get a farm, they'll go to the <laughs> mountains, they'll go to the, you know, go buy a boat and live on it. It's like, yeah. all right, I'm done with you guys. This is just too much. Yeah, um, it's like, it's so hard to take. Yeah, it is. And it's just, it's mind boggling. There's a, there's another comedian and I'm I'm starting to, he's got a like a line. It's like, aren't you embarrassed? And that's, that's yeah. how, when I, when I watch TV these days and I watch like the news, it's like, aren't you embarrassed? What is going on here? Yes. So, uh, so what's next for you? What is, what is, you know, you just got your master's, right? No, I was actually, um, I just got my bachelor's degree. Okay. I was, I applied and was accepted to go to the university of Washington's, um, Evans School of Public Policy and Governance. I just deferred my admissions because um, as a result of all of this crazy viral stuff that's going on, I have received a number of fantastic opportunities to explore. If I'm in grad school, I'm not going to explore any of those things because I'm gonna have my head down focusing on grad school. Um, I'm in the process mm -hmm. right now of negotiating uh, some stuff with a program down in San Diego. Um, they are also associated with the, um, the director of DHS in Tennessee, uh, who formerly was directing Department of Health and Social Services for the entire country. Um, and they want me to be a national spokesperson for what's called an overcomers network. And so this program is called Solutions for Change. And what they've done is they've created this program to help sort of overturn the, you know, patterns that we've gained, like through addiction and homelessness and things like that. And they've successfully been running for, uh, well, since about 1999, I guess. And um, they have helped a tremendous amount of people change their lives, get clean and sober, be accountable, um, become, you know, holistic and independent families. And so they've offered me a position that I'm probably going to take. Uh, so I'll be relocating into California most likely within the next few months. Um, and then I have another opportunity coming up. Um, and I can't really reveal all the information about that one. I have to wait for this person to announce their political running. And so, but it's also in California where I will be able to um, spearhead and direct or lead a program for sen a sentencing alternative program with a prosecutor's office. And so, so those are the things in my future that I'm most um, excited about. Uh, I am talking to a guy that produces movies. I'm in the middle of writing a book, um, which I started long before this whole viral thing happened. So yeah, so those are some of the things that are going on. I'll reassess my grad school entrance in 2022, but I'm going to tell you that uh, the salary offers that I've that I've been offered uh, exceed what a person with a master's degree in public policy um, uh, makes. And so, you know, and it's not just about money for me, but I do want to make sure that the hard work that I've put in is uh, compensated appropriately so that I can stabilize my own family. But I really, what I want to do is I want to change these relationships. I want to change, I want to participate with police forces uh, to change the relationships with them in society. I want to change, um, one of my biggest goals is to implement a rehabilitative process that is mandatory inside of prisons and the homeless sector. Um, so those are some of my big goals and with 
this position down in San Diego, it will give me an opportunity to progress my narrative nationally. So keep your fingers crossed and I'll keep you posted. That's that's awesome. I, I'm so excited for you. And I'm sure anybody in California who has listened to this and, you know, here's your mindset is going, yes, please. Finally, somebody. Um, it, that's great. Absolutely amazing. And I, I wish you nothing but the best. Awesome. Um, so we are going to take a quick break and uh, we are going to come right back. We're going to play Signal 3. So just hang out with me one more moment. Did you know that in the years 2017 to 2018, the American obesity rate was over 42%? Did you further know that police officers are 25% more likely than the average American to die from obesity-related illnesses? These are diseases like diabetes, cardiovascular disease, and high blood pressure. So what do we do? Do we continue to stay victims to shift work and terrible nutrition options while going call to call? Or do we do something about it? Well, I decided to do something about it, and that's why I started working with Nick Wall Nutrition. Nick is one of less than 100 professional nutritionists in the entire United Kingdom and has worked with many professional athletes from soccer, rugby, cricket, and even Team Great Britain. And all of his plans are backed by pure scientific evidence. Eating the foods you love and losing weight doing it. No fad diets, no pills, no powders, and no god-awful detox teas. Nick is the real deal and was named Nutrition Specialist of the Year for the year 2019 to 2020. Check him out on Instagram at NickWallNutrition or NickWallNutrition.com and join Nick's team and change your life. All right, we are back and we're going to play Signal 3. Again, we have Ginny Burton here. Uh, Absolutely amazing conversation. I want to thank you for your time. So we are going to do Signal 3. So basically Signal 3 is going to be uh, a bunch of different questions. Some of them are going to be uh, this or that. I'm going to give you two things. Pick which one you want. Um, Some of them are going to be overrated, underrated where basically I'll give you something. You tell me if it's overrated, underrated, or accurately rated. And the last batch of them is going to be just random get to know you questions and um, just don't think about them too hard. Tell me the first answer that comes to your head. All right. Okay. So the first Here, set is going to be this or that or. Yep. In, okay. Yep. We're going we're gonna to do this or that first. So the first five. So uh, the first one is going to be dogs or cats. Dogs. Okay. Uh, coffee or energy drinks. Oh, coffee. <laughs> okay. Uh, burgers or tacos. Tacos. Mountains or beach. Mountains. Okay. Uh, would you rather ride in the train Dance in the rain or feel no pain? Dance in the rain. Okay. Now we're going to do overrated, underrated. Um, So we're going to start with s'mores. Overrated. Okay. I 100% agree with you. Uh, What about bacon? Uh, Overrated. Okay. Going to see a movie? Underrated. Okay. All right. I I think COVID has taught me that don't have to go to the movie because everything's on Netflix, but... You know, it's that social interaction thing. I think that I'm kind of missing, but I'm also not rushing to the movies anytime soon. Yeah. Well, (laughs) with the movies, I think that um, I think it's nice to get out of sitting in the house. So I think that, um, you know, I have a 15 year old who's gotten really comfortable sitting in the bedroom. And Mm -hmm. it's sort of like a date. It's like getting out on the town a little bit when you actually go into the theater. It's definitely expensive, but it's worth the experience. That's true. That's that's a very good uh, way of taking it. I like that. Uh, what about going to brunch? Um, um, maybe underrated. Okay. And the last one for these, uh, avocados. Um, underrated. Okay. All right. So the last one, or last five, is going to be just your uh, 
I'm going to give you something. Just give me an answer. Uh, what's your dream vacation destination? Patagonia mountains. Ooh. All right. That's, that's a new one. I haven't gotten that one. What's your favorite donut flavor? Um, probably just a plain French cruller. Okay. Okay. When you're walking into the biggest moment of your life, imagine it being like a big MMA fight, like the bottom of the ninth of the world series. What is your walk-on song? Uh, probably I have tiger. <laughs> okay. <laughs> what is the best piece of advice anyone ever gave you? You have to take care of yourself first. Yep. I, I've been trying to tell that to everybody. That's a, you know, that's yep. a piece of advice that law enforcement and all first responders, they don't take to heart enough, you know, and uh, the way I always word it is you can't pour out of an empty glass. Like you gotta, you gotta yes. fill the glass first. Yeah. All right. The, the last one of these questions, Jenny, if you could share a meal with one person dead or alive that you've never met, who would it be? And what would you order? Hmm. You know, not to like make it like a, such a big deal, but it might be Gandhi. Um, I would probably order a bowl of rice or whatever he was eating. I would imagine it'd be a bowl of rice. And um, probably just so I could experience um, some of his philosophies, which I imagine are very simple. Yes, absolutely. That's that's a great one. All right, Jenny, that's it. You did great. Cool. If anyone wanted to follow you on social media, see what you're doing, keep up with you, how do they do that? Yeah. So all of the social media platforms that I engage with are they have the same name, V Jenny Burton, and that's G I N N Y. That's on Facebook, that's on Instagram, and it's on my LinkedIn. Perfect. Great. And uh, and do you have a website also? I do. It's under construction. I'm trying to figure it out myself. And that is VGinnyBurton.com. Perfect. Ginny Burton, thank you so much for hanging out with me for a, few, for a little bit, telling us your insight, telling us your story. I really appreciate it. All right. You have a wonderful day. Yes, you as well. Everyone listening, stay tuned. We'll be right back. And as far as I can see, I just need privacy Plus a whole lot of tree, fuck all this modesty I just need space to do me, get a world what they're trying to see A Stella Maxwell right beside of me A Ferrari, I'm buying three A closet of Saint Laurent, get what I want when I want Cause his hunger is driving me, yeah I just need to be alone, I just need to be at home Understand what I'm speaking on, if time is money, I need a loan But regardless, I'll always keep keeping on Fuck fake friends, we don't take L's, we just make M's While y'all follow, we just make trends I'm right back to work when that break ends Yeah. Ooh, it's just me, myself, and I Solo ride until I die Cause I got me for life Got me for life, yeah. I don't need a hand to hold Even when the night is cold I got that fire in my soul Guys, go check her out, vginnyburton.com, vginnyburton on all social media platforms. She is just amazing what she has done, what she accomplished, and what she's going to do. So definitely go check her out. 
All right, guys, we are going to start transitioning away towards the end of the episode. We've had an amazing conversation. I think we started out very good. We continued very good, and we're going to end just as strong. So I'm actually going to end our conversation today, our episode, on another high note. But this one's going to be a little bit more jovial uh, before we bid adieu. So what I want to talk about is uh, my personal life, which I don't really talk about all too much, but we're going to talk about a little bit. And basically, when I moved to Southwest Florida, moved in with my girlfriend and, you know, away from talking about stuff other than just police stuff. Um, also with it came my girlfriend's daughter and she she doesn't live with us full time. It's a 50-50 it's a custody agreement or, or whatever. But um, now... I've got several nieces and nephews and they range, it's a wide range of ages from like 25, I think my math is off to about six, I think about there. So wide range, but that also means that I've experienced the different ages. Um, I was like, I don't know, 14, no younger than 14. When I changed my first diaper, I was like 10. no like 11 or 12 when I made my first bottle of formula and it's just progressed since then. I mean, I've taken care of baby babies and I've taken care of not babies, but, um, I've noticed something, you know, kind of helping my girlfriend take care of her daughter and just kind of do, you know, putting on, we're, we're people of many hats, right? So me putting on this kind of caregiver role for a child, um, I've noticed something and I noticed this as a child, but I actually put it into words, uh, kind of, learning this new part of my life, which has been great. I have absolutely no issues with it, but I have noticed that there is a significant difference, right? Between being taken care of by a mom and a a dad or, or, you know, in those roles, right? And I think about my parents, like, obviously, uh, my, my family was very traditional. Okay. My dad worked, my mom stayed at home and took care of us. But every once in a while, though my mother and, and many mothers of that kind of um, cut from that cloth, though they were super women and they you know never took a sick day, whatever, sometimes they did. It was a rare occasion, but every once in a while, mom got to stay in bed, dad took care of you. And you know, you always got taken care of by dad, but it was never as warm and comforting as being taken care of by mom. I, I kind of likened it to blankets, right? So when mom takes care of you, it's that really soft microfiber, very warm blanket that wraps you up and you just feel amazing. And dad is like being warmed up by a wool blanket that you would get from the military, right? Both get the job done. One's just a little bit more pleasant than the other. I don't know. I That's how I figured it. And, you know, when... I wake up earlier than my girlfriend because she works nights and I'm on days at the moment and I'm taking care of, of her daughter. And, you know, I definitely don't do things as smooth and polished and, and as perfectly as my girlfriend does, but it gets the job done. It's a little more rough around the edges, but we get it done nonetheless. And I just thought that was pretty uh, appropriate, the reference that I made. I don't know. Maybe maybe I'm wrong. Maybe I'm way off on this, guys. Or maybe I'm on to something. I actually want you guys to chime in on it. Give me a call and let me know what you think. And that number for everybody that hasn't put it into their phone yet is 352-610-1692. Call the 10A Podcast and give me your take 
on, you know, if there's being different uh, difference between getting taken care of by a mom or a dad or whatever. It is supposed to be lighthearted, guys. Speaking of lighthearted, let's go to the voicemail and let's see what we have. So what is the best breakfast food and why is it French toast? So I like this question. It's a good question. I don't know who it came from, but thank you very much for calling it in and asking. Um, now I'm assuming we're talking about like the breakfast, uh, like the pancakes, the waffles, the French toast, because that's kind of where we go. Or maybe like a biscuits and gravy. And I'm going to vote pancakes. I am. Um, but if I had to rank all four, and I'm going to do it live. I'm just thinking about it right now. All four between uh, pancakes, French toast, waffles, and biscuits and gravy. Which biscuits and gravy is kind of, it's, you know what, we're going to take those out. So top three. And it's going to go in that order. It's going to go pancakes, waffles, and French toast. I like French toast, but I have never had, like, knock you down, kick your ass, amazing French toast. So maybe I'm just going to the wrong breakfast places for french toast but it's never my first choice always pancakes and uh then waffles but waffles i feel like when you get them out at a diner or whatever you know they always kind of do too much bro just give me some syrup i'm not a big butter on my pancakes or waffles kind of guy either so i don't even need that just give me some syrup and uh and we'll make it happen i don't need like all the fruit and the whipped cream and stuff that's too much for breakfast no 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 just maple syrup and I'll be good to go. So that's what I think. But again, I want to know what you guys think because this could be a, a good conversation for the group. 352-610-1692. Let me know. And with all that being said, guys, that does conclude our episode for today. Thank you guys so much for hanging out with me. Next week, we have Drunk Cops 3.5 with Kenny Williams, the Red Ninja, Frank Castle, and some special guests. You don't want to miss it. The first Drunk Cops of the season. It may be the only one. I haven't decided yet. But so far I've got like 20 episodes planned out for this season. This is the only Drunk cop, So get it while you can. And hopefully we get another one squeezed in there. But again, Kenny Williams, Frank Castle, and then some special guests throughout the night. It's about halfway edited as of right now. Hopefully I get some more done this week. And we get it released on time next week. And it definitely will. The music for today started with Stay as always. Then we had No Cigar. Uh, a cover by Mike Herrera again uh, with the band. Uh, the original band is Melancholin. The song is No Cigar. Then we had Me, Myself, and I by g Easy, And we are going to wrap it up with the band The Wonder Years from Philadelphia and their song A Rain Dance in Traffic. It's a very good song. Kind of pushed me through some of my dark days. Uh, once again, guys, take care of each other. Stay safe. We will see you next week for Drunk Cops 10-8. Out.
thanking 